0: Grab your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 6, and we're going to do all that we can to make it through two chapters tonight, Acts 6 and Acts 7, the incredible ministry of one man, the life of Stephen. I kind of want to put this together as a, as a little bit of a, a novel tonight, when you look at you know, our lives individually, very often, you would take them collectively as a whole. And you talk about somebody's individual life, and you go from birth all the way to the end of their days. And And here we have this incredible picture of Stephen. And as we journey through this, in the New Testament, there are two words that are used for crown, and they're very different. Uh, one of them, which we use actually in, in English, we use the term diadem. In, in Greek, it's diadema. Yeah, and it is that crown that only belongs on the head, really, of a, of a king, ultimately. It's a royal crown. And then the other word is Stephanos, which is a victor's crown. So there are two different crowns, and there are two different reasons that you have those two different crowns. And when you think of those things, all of us one day are going to receive a Stephanos when we get to heaven, that, that victor's crown. We'll take those crowns. Some of us are going to have more than others, and you're going to grab one of those crowns and take it off. And You're going to take the next one off, take all of them off, because no one really deserves to wear a crown in the presence of the Lord. But he will still have that kingly crown, and we'll have those crowns that we earn so to speak. And when you think of it that way, you you can actually inherit a diadem, a kingly crown. And Christ is the king of all of the earth, and he's going to inherit the crown that's rightly his. This earth is his, the fullness of it. But Stephen is going to earn his crown. He's going to get it from a life well lived. And he's this incredible example of how to live Uh, not just our lives, but how really to to give our lives in the service of the Lord. And so we see this incredible super servant, and he's going to be crowned. So as we'll pick up in Acts 6, the first seven verses will begin there. And in these two chapters, there's really four very specific ministries or windows that you can look at in Stephen's life. And they're, they're pictures really of how we live our lives to a large degree. And the first thing that we see is this incredible servant. Verse 1 here in Acts 6, and it says, And now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, and remember, in spite of all of the efforts of the religious Jews to push back and to hinder the work of Jesus, that hasn't happened. And in fact, the church under that persecution, as we saw last time, is actually Growing. And the church has always grown under persecution because people are generally acceptant of someone expressing themselves in such a way that they believe something so wholeheartedly as to give their life to that endeavor. Uh, and they'll look at they may not even agree with them, but they'll say, that person absolutely believes, and whatever it is, is worth listening to. And that was true with the disciples. And so that power is beginning to work throughout Uh, the area of Jerusalem. And as we get through chapter 6, the time in Jerusalem, the ministry in Jerusalem in the book of Acts is really going to kind of come to a close. And from there, remember that it's going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. And so we're covering that period of time now uh, that still remains in Jerusalem. And now in those days, it says there in verse 1 of Acts 6, when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Now, remember that there are all kinds of different factions of people within Jewish society at that time. The Hebrews would have been those who were Orthodox and traditional. The Hellenists were Jews who were raised in a Greek environment. And so they are also Jews, but they're Greek-speaking Jews. And so there are two different groups here because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And as you think on those things, I want to be really clear here. No one is above doing anything for the Lord. But there are things that pastors should focus on and leaders should focus on. And when God's given you a gift, you should exercise it to its fullness And so within the structure of how we see church in general, we're talking about the church as a whole and how it functions in this world, pastors should primarily attend unto those things which are are pastorally oriented and not necessarily uh, facilities oriented. And one of the problems that we see in the church today is we have pastors who are more business managers than they are students of God's word and men of prayer. And so that was true in this time as well. And it is a fallacy for a pastor to believe that any church is going to be healthy when that pastor does not attend primarily to the Word of God and to prayer. That's what we should be doing. Now, if it ends up being a business manager or a project manager or an administrator, those things are all wonderful gifts. They're great. Some pastors have them, some don't. But leaders in the church are primarily there to share the Word of God and to be men of prayer. And so notice where it goes from here. It's not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. And therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that may we may appoint them over the business, really, of the church. And so it's, it's getting to that place where they're thinking about what we commonly call deacons. They're not going to be called that until Paul writes to Timothy, but these are men who attend to the details of the church. The practical things, making sure that people are fed, making sure that the carpet's cleaned, making sure that things are nicely and neatly in order. We, could, we would have a whole bunch of other duties that we'd see today that would be categorized underneath someone who has that gift of being a deacon. And so what was happening was the apostles were becoming so concerned with the practical things that they weren't spending time in the Word. And so the deficiency of the Word, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Amen? So if the pastor isn't attending to the Word, the pastor doesn't have anything to share except for the burdens of the duty of running the church. And so Here we find a problem is created, in essence, uh, by the very men who will be uh, used to to bring a solution to it. And I want you to notice the process. Seek out from among you. It does very little good to treat the church uh, like a business. There are some things that we must do in a business-like manner, and there are some principles that transfer directly across. But in this case, this is not a job search. This is a heart search. This is to look from within the church and see the men that were faithful to attending to the details, because those men are going to have the heart of the church. And this, by the way, is not exclusive to just men. There were deaconesses as well, those women who attended unto the details of the church. And so it's not a male gift. It's a gift of service. Uh, and and again, it's recognizing that people have all kinds of gifts and utilizing them for the kingdom, but they're from within. Because what happens from within is those people will have a, their hands on the pulse of the body. They're going to know what's going on, and so they appoint those. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to ministry of the word. And the saying, please the whole multitude. It should please the whole multitude of every church that the pastor wants to spend time in the word. And sometimes I'm frankly shocked at how many people get upset uh, because I've had them. Because I'll, I'll, I'll say to them, well, I really need to spend time studying. This is my study day. And they will say, well, you know, can you see me anyway? I'll say, no, I'm going to spend time studying because today's my study day. And they'll say, but my life's falling apart. I say, well, your life's been falling apart for a very long time. Uh, but today is my study day. And it's like, it just doesn't get there sometimes. Pastors need to spend time in the Word of God. If we don't, we have nothing to give. It's what we're here to do. And so when the pastors here tell me, hey, I'm behind in my studies, uh, you can be assured that my response to them will be spend time in the Word. Now, sometimes that's later in the evening. Sometimes that's not during what we would call business hours. But again, Pastors are supposed to be able to communicate God's Word. That's our primary function. We should always give pastors an opportunity to study and to be people of prayer. It's not wrong. It's a good thing. And the people were pleased in this case. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Faith comes through a work of the Holy Spirit but you can be filled with both. You can be filled with faith and filled with the Holy Spirit. Faith, remember, is, is your relationship with the Lord uh, often in action. The Holy Spirit, that driving force behind that action. And they chose Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them, And then the word of God spread. And notice the result of this. When the things that the church is supposed to do are handled the right way, in other words, you don't have uh, everybody focused on whether the operation of the church is going to be good. Uh, I can tell you we have tremendous pastoral staffing and help here that accomplish all the functions of the church. You know, there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes those live stream videos and things that you watch, that I'm not back there controlling that. That's one of, those, one of those gifts that other people get to exercise and make sure that those things happen. They're essential parts of the function of the church. But what happens here is then the Word of God is spread. The Word of God will go forth. A number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests, and notice this, the priests themselves, because remember, the temple is still on the Temple Mount, The priests are still ministering in the temple and the word of God is going forth and the Hebrew priests, the Jewish priests, the Levitical priests are hearing the word of God and they're actually becoming believers and they were obedient to the faith. The church at this time, like many churches that are doing well, was was experiencing growing pains. And so these Grecians, the Greek-speaking Jews, had come to Palestine from all kinds of different nations, and and they began to kind of wrestle a little bit for power. And it's a sad thing, but it's also something that happens fairly regularly. The different factions within a church will try and gain power. And so it was in this particular church. Those outsiders kind of felt like they were being neglected and created a situation that kind of divided the church. But I want you to see how they handled it. They handled it by remembering that the first things must always be first. And the first thing in every church is the Word of God. The first thing is not social programs. The first thing, though we're super grateful that we have a coffee shop, believe it or not, the coffee shop is not the main thing here. It's the Word of God. It's not even worship, as wonderful as that is. That is to set the stage to receive the Word of God. It is the Word of God that transforms lives. Every church in its primary function is about putting forth the Word of God in a way that people's lives can be transformed. But sometimes what happens is churches get kind of set in that status quo thing. It's like, well, we've always done it this way. You know, we've always distributed, you know, bread on Tuesday. We've always done this other thing. That's a good place to recognize the gifts, as we talked about this morning, because we are one big family. That's a great place to let other people serve, to let people get involved in the work of the ministry, and to use the gifts that God's given them. Because when it begins to erode the Word of God, and the Word of God is not the main focus, and the social programs that the church is doing become the main focus Then the church is going to cease to have much effect in this world. Because it is, in fact, the word that transforms lives. The apostles recognized that. They kind of created a problem and they went about fixing it. You don't want a spiritual deficiency. It's better to have a practical deficiency than a spiritual deficiency. Everybody understand that? It is better to have a practical deficiency than it is a spiritual deficiency. Because the Word of God has power. And it goes forth and accomplishes what it was sent by the Spirit to do. As great and as wonderful as things are, you know, we love having a beautiful facility and it being well taken care of and all those kind of things. But the church has existed long before beautiful facilities like this. The church has had power without these things. People have come to faith in Christ with none of the stuff that we're using tonight. You know, none of the apostles carried around a tablet. They didn't have smartphones. They didn't even own Bibles. But they had the power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit working in them, and that caused the church to grow. We can't lose sight of that, family. I get asked all the time why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? You know, we should be over here and over there and doing and, and all those things may well actually be wonderful things that ultimately the Lord would have us do, but not at the expense of the Word of God. There's a reason that we have all the different Bible studies throughout the weeks that we ha- throughout the week that we have It's because that is the primary function of the church itself. And so we see this servant, Stephen. And actually, the, 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 the word here is, is really for him, uh, is, is servant. So these seven servants take up the things that they should be doing, serving the church. And as we look at Stephen's life and begin to break it down, we're going to see a bunch of things. But some things that are important to you and should be important to us as the church is that this man was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of wisdom. He's full of faith and consequently full of power. If you're not full of the Holy Spirit, if you're not full of the Word, if you're not full of faith, you will not be full of power. It's that simple. If you don't have those things from God, then all of the going to school and learning how to preach and teach is going to do you zero good. Because church isn't about a practice. Church is about some principles, and those principles are found in God's Word. And I will tell you that I've gone and, you know, there are times when, as as a pastor, you get asked to go sit in on other pastors' teaching. Uh, And I've seen some messages that were delivered by some folks that, you know, it's like, "Mm, I'm not really sure, you know, I'm not sure they're called. But because they spoke forth the word, people came to faith in Christ. The word itself has power. And so it is the speaking forth of that word that has power. Pick up now in verse 8 and we see this radical witness. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. You see when he stopped serving tables and dug into the word of God and spent time in prayer, that's when the power of the Holy Spirit was available to him. Because he didn't have divided loyalties. He wasn't doing too many things. It's a grave temptation. It's a temptation in my own life to get involved in all the little details. It's taken me a long time to kind of wedge my fingers off of stuff and say, you know what? Uh, Pastor Rob can handle that. Pastor Pat can handle that. Pastor Dave can handle that. Pastor Greg can handle that. Pastor Jimmy or Brandon, they can handle those things. I need to attend to the things that God's called me to attend to, and that's primarily the word. And then there arose some of what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, these were men who had been set free. Um, Saul of Tarsus, actually, uh, in Sicilia, was one of those who was in the synagogue at that time, probably in the same place. And, and so these were, these were a group who were comprised of Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and they, they were from all over the place. But they were formerly Roman slaves who had been set free who had come to faith in Christ, who were previously Jews, and so they had a, a kind of an interesting take on how the church was was going to respond and respond, and so they 're now disputing with Stephen, but they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke, and I can tell you that the Word of God, when it 's spoken plainly has the power to resolve those kind of arguments. The word speaks for itself, and Stephen just simply speaks because he's spending time in it, because he's spending time in prayer. He speaks forth the word of God, and these guys are all contentious, and he's able to put down that argument. And then they secretly induce men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now, of course, he hadn't done that, but he had been speaking the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord said that By faith, Moses, and by faith, Abraham, and we're going to get to those guys in a moment. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. So now you have another religious uprising. They're not happy about this grace thing. Religion is never happy about grace. Religion is always after grace. And so they stirred them up. And they also set up false witnesses to say this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. So he's assaulting the holy place, assaulting the law, assaulting the temple, assaulting the, the, what they knew to be uh, Hebrew tradition, Jewish tradition. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. They're like, he's attacking the Torah, he's attacking the temple. He's attacking the festivals. What's next? When all he's really saying was Jesus came to fill the law. That's what Jesus said about it. And all those who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. So these guys are talking. They're staring at Stephen going, hmm, there's something different about this man. Spirit-filled man doesn't limit his ministry to serving tables. He, he's looking for the lost. He's looking for people. And this powerful testimony that he would have. Uh, Stephen is, is treated very much like Jesus was treated. I remember some of the things that happened in Jesus' life. And it was interesting when you, when you look at how that happened. He, he was this incredibly radical witness. And and as he speaks forth these things, as, as people are arguing over who's going to serve what table, Stephen's saying, look, I'm just going to preach the word. And as he begins to do that, people can't argue with it. One of the things that you'll find, and this is a little secret to counseling, if you stick to what the word says and don't edit it to suit your purposes or the person that you're talking to, but you just give them the word of God as it is written, then they're stuck having to debate God. And that is a really good place to be. But if you take it upon yourself to alter what it says to make them feel comfortable or so that they don't get offended by it because the gospel is an offense, there's a lot of things in the Bible when people come to you for counsel, they're, they're going to say, well, you know, I don't think I actually, you know, I'm not sure it says that. And You, you just simply teach the word. Then they're, they're going to have to argue with God. And that's what Stephen does. He just simply teaches the word. And these guys are going, and they want to argue, but they can't. Because the wisdom that he's expressing is the wisdom of God. So if you want to have God on your side, little secret, just teach the word. When I talk to the pastors here about counseling, very often people will bring in some counseling book, some manual that somebody wrote. And there are many of them that are quite good, to be very honest. I'm not trying to bash those books. But I always tell them, resort and always turn to, for the final authority, God's word. That way, you don't have to answer for why you gave them the words of man. You can simply give them the word of God. That's all Stephen does. And for that, he becomes persecuted. You remember what they did to Jesus? You see, nobody could match his wisdom because the spirit-filled man is not limiting his ministry. He's just simply looking at, at what the scriptures say, and he's repeating those things verbatim. And, and as they're looking at it, they're seeing the shining face of Moses, and they're remembering back. You know, I kind of remember, didn't Moses do this whole thing on, you know, when he went up and met with God, and he came back, and didn't he have to wear a uh, you know a whole veil over his face because the glory started to fade there's something kind of eerily similar here and so they begin to look at Stephen for who he really is this incredible witness and in what you see in his life remember that he was so much like the Lord because they hired false witnesses against Jesus didn't they did they not stir up the people to accuse Jesus falsely? Didn't they finally start listening to the witnesses instead of the word, the testimony of the one who was accused? And they ended up killing him? They're going to do the same thing to Stephen. That's the way the enemy works. He has a basic tool that he works with. It's lies and falsehood. And he'll use them against you, use them against me, use them against the church. And some people, if you tell a lie often enough, people begin to believe it. And so you have to pray against that lie. The enemy tries to suppress the truth that way. But he's such a godly guy, he just doesn't go in for it. And so what does he do? He turns to the word itself. And he's able to speak forth these things into their life because he uses the word. Notice verse 1, now as we move on to chapter 7. And actually, you're going to see several things. He uses all these examples. They are basically him recounting their own history to them and saying, you know, you guys really might want to think about that. You might want to actually think back on what it is, because isn't it interesting? You can read a passage of Scripture and think on it, and you can get the right interpretation of it, And then when your own life kind of gets going and then you start to apply it, you kind of conveniently leave out some of the details. And so it's like, well, I kind of sort of believe it, but not really. It's the way the Jewish people uh, rather handled the word of God. Verse one, it says, and then the high priest said, are these things so? In other words, you know, did you really blaspheme the temple. Did you blaspheme the Lord? Did you blaspheme our history? And then verse 2, he said, that would be Stephen. Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So the first one, the first example is their roots in Abraham. Revered by the Jewish people, he said, okay, well let's look at Abraham. You're going to accuse me of it? Let's look at his life. And you tell me Did I do anything to disrespect Father Abraham? The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia and he dwelt there in Haran. And he said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt at Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to the land in which you now dwell. So he's, he's spot on up to that point, right? He's giving him the truth. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. So he's recounting the Abrahamic covenant. He's saying, look, this, God did this to us. God gave us that promise. But God spoke this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land. And they would br- he would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And as a nation to whom they would be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And then he gave him a covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. So he gives them a little history lesson. He says, look, you you guys kind of need to remember who Abraham was. You kind of have this mystical thinking about Father Abraham. He actually wasn't perfect as much as you'd like to believe he was. And in fact, we ended up in bondage down in Egypt. He lied about his wife. And so he's stirring up a little history lesson in them. Opens with the glory of God. It closes with the glory of God. But he's saying, look, we're a privileged nation, but we were pl- privileged to have the glory of God. And we didn't exactly handle that right. We kind of messed up. Abraham observed all these things, sought. God spoke to him. He came here, but he still messed up. And because of that, we spent time uh, down in Egypt. And though Abraham, as we know, because the book of Hebrews tells us, his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. Paul writes to the Roman church, says the same thing, which we just studied. He says, from the very beginning, God has this wise plan. He's going to fulfill it. But he says, as long as we trusted his word. And when we stopped trusting his word, you know what happened to us? Down to Egypt we went. And though they revered Abraham... They were his children. The Jews were as blind to the faith as Abraham as anyone could possibly be. They thought that Abraham received what Abraham got because he was an awesome man of righteousness. He received what he got because he was an awesome man of faith, and that faith was accounted to him as righteousness. He was not anywhere close to perfect. And so they had the wrong view of Abraham. Stephen tells them that. Second thing we see, verse 9, let's check it out. They rejected their God-sent deliverers, like Joseph and Moses. So they're all, you know, they're like really super angry right now. It's like, you're disrespecting Abraham, you're disrespecting Joseph, and you're disrespecting Moses. And they were perfect. Really. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. So it wasn't bad enough that Abraham put him into harm's way. Let's look back on the rest of these guys. But God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and made him governor over all of Egypt and his household. Okay, so the 12 brothers, of which Joseph is going to be one of them. You know, you, you, see the whole, you, see, you see the whole plan. They're like, you know, we're perfect, we're awesome, we've never done anything. Well, you sold Joseph into slavery. And now famine had, and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And her fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out the fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brother, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And then Joseph sent and called for his father Jacob, and all of his relatives to him, and 75 people. And so Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in a tomb that Abraham bought with a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied. They were down there for 400 years. They spent a lot of time in Egypt. So I'm going to kind of put Moses and Joseph together because there's some real similarities there. Till another king who arose who did not know Joseph... And this man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. And at that time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own. And Moses was learned in the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And now when he was 40 years old, came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down an Egyptian, where he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver him by his hand, but they did not understand. You see, his perfect group of people that are all over Stephen about disrespecting the Jewish faith and disrespecting the temple and disrespecting the patriarchs and disrespecting everything Jewish, there was actually some reason to say, mm, maybe we could do a little better. What they did not understand. The next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them. And, and men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? And then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the bush, the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight And drew near to observe, and the voice of the Lord came upon him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled, and he dared to look. Dared not to look, excuse me. And the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off, for the place that you stand is holy ground. And I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their groaning, and have come down now to deliver them. Now come, and I will send you to Egypt." And this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? Is the one God sent to be ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush, and he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, in the Red Sea, and the wilderness for 40 years. So the one whom the Jewish people were saying, Hey, you're disrespecting Moses they themselves totally disrespected and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? And so when you see these two Jewish heroes, both Joseph and Moses, there's a common thing, a thread that runs through their life. They were both rejected as deliverers the first time, but they were accepted the second time. In other words, the Jewish people said, oh no, we're not having any of that. But when it gets down to Stephen, oh, how dare you say anything about Moses? But the Jewish people themselves have been disrespecting Moses since day one. You remember the whole rest of the story. It wasn't like they followed his orders. Moses is on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. What are the people doing at the base of the mountain? Party! They're like, we're going to dance around the fire, make some little golden calves. We're doing good down here. You stay up there on the mountain, Moses. You see, they only revered Moses when it was convenient. It's an interesting lesson to us as the church. We need to revere God all the time, not just when it's convenient. We need to listen to him all the time, not just when it's convenient. And we need to get our own history right. Because most of us, if not all of us, were an absolute mess when Jesus found us. Amen? So sometimes where this affects us is we start talking to other people like we ourselves have never sinned. Like, well, I'm holy Saint Jeff, and you are like like evil. You see, we need to remember our own history. The Jewish people are going to put Stephen to death for something that he's not even guilty of because they didn't want to hear the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord was, they were the ones that were a mess. It wasn't Stephen. But they would rather have the tradition than the truth. Brothers and sisters, you never want tradition over truth. You always want truth over tradition. Take tradition, huck it out the window, And you cling to the truth of God's word. Tradition can be good. It's not all necessarily bad. But if you have to sacrifice truth for tradition, then you get rid of the traditions. So you see, Israel really today is still suffering from that same problem. And yet they thought that now we're past that, now we're good. No, they weren't. They actually missed it. They, they missed the picture in Abraham. They missed the picture in Moses. They missed the picture in Joseph. They plain missed the picture. But they're thinking they got it when they didn't have it. You see, we need to be careful, too, the next thing, they disobeyed, they disobeyed their own God-given law. You, you see, they're acting like they're good with the law. But they're not even good with the law. Verse 37, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, Lord, your God will raise you up for you, a prophet like me from your brethren, and him you shall hear. Well, that didn't really happen either. Yet, it will this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to them at Mount Sinai and with their fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. We're acting like we've been listening to God the whole time when we have not been listening to God the whole time. We've been pretending we have. And their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Remember? saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. (laughs) Moses is on the mountain and they're, the dude's dead. Let's make some golden caps. He's been gone barely a month. And they're like, well, that time's over. We don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to an idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And then God turned and gave them up to the worship of the host of heaven, as was written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech, the star of the god of Repham, the images which you made to worship. And I will carry you away to Babylon. He says, look, you weren't faithful to me. It's interesting when people revert to religion over relationship. Instead of having a relationship with the true and living God that's based on truth, they have religion that's based on tradition. And all of a sudden, they get selective memory. It's like, oh yeah, I've been totally faithful. Really? Really? What about that whole incident where the entire children of Israel are encamped at the bottom of the mountain in the wilderness? What about that one? Well, you see, God was trying to speak to them. No sooner had the people received the law than they disobeyed it. They didn't have it a month and they're, diso- they're disobeying it. We don't know where Moses went but we're going to go back to what we were doing before. You you see, this is kind of the way religious pluralism works in our our world today. It's like people kind of want Jesus and they want salvation by grace, but they also want to be able to do whatever they want to do. They don't want to hear the real word of the Lord. They want to hear their edited version of the word of the Lord. And so I want to just really encourage you. Look, when when you think about your own life, Remember you're a recipient of grace. You've not been perfect. You haven't kept the law, and neither have I perfectly. No church has kept it perfectly. No church is a perfect church. We need to keep it real when we're talking about a relationship with the Lord. If it weren't for his grace, we're all dead. If it weren't for his mercy, we're all gonna perish these same Jewish people are saying, well, look, we kept the law perfectly. Don't know what you're talking about. As they're getting ready to stone, they're putting him, they're going to put him to death basically for a false accusation. We're perfect. You're not. You blaspheme Moses. And they couldn't see that they actually did as much blaspheming of Moses and as much blaspheming of the law and as much blaspheming of God as, as, Stephen had ever been accused of doing. They actually didn't even hear Stephen do it, but because somebody falsely said he did, they're going to put him to death when they themselves are actually guilty. In actuality, the children of Israel were completely guilty of the very thing that they're accusing Stephen of doing. That's what people do when they're trying to justify their own sin. They pick and choose the word of God. You go, well, I like this part, but I don't like this part. So I'm going to hold you to this part, but I'm going to disobey this part. But because my part that I'm holding you to is better than the part that I'm disobeying myself, you're in trouble and I'm okay. You want to look at it from a real, God actually dealt with the Jewish people because they went to worshiping pagan deities. They worship Molech. They worshiped Ashtaroth. They're sacrificing their own children in the arms of Molech. He would heat them up and cry out to Molech, Oh, Molech! And take and deposit their own infant children on his bronze arms and burn them to death. And they're like, well, that wasn't that big a deal. At least we didn't say, you know, Moses was a bad guy. They're, they're putting up a straw man argument. Verse forty-four. Let's see if we can see if we can get it. I think we can finish it. They even despised their own temple, the very temple. They're saying, "Well, this guy said that this temple is going to fall off the mountaintop." Stephen's saying the temple is going to come tumbling down. Verse forty-four. Our fathers had tabernacles of witness in the wilderness. As he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for God of Jacob, and Solomon built him a house. I said, So here's the story. We carried around the tabernacle in the wilderness. For 40 years, we've got this tent that we set everywhere we go. We set it up. The 12 tribes spread out in front of the, the various ordinal directions of the temple. And you've got each one with their own flag. And they surround the entire tabernacle. And there it is in the middle and in the holy place inside of that first section of that beaver skin tent with golden sideboards. There's the table of showbread and the altar of incense and the great menorah, the light of the word. And inside is the Ark of the Covenant. And there at the Ark of the Covenant is literally the place where God meets with them. And they drag that around in the wilderness. And God says, well, we can't have a temporary meeting place. So when you get to Jerusalem, we're going to actually build a building. But because David had blood on his hands, David couldn't build that building. And so Solomon builds the building it's revered. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. That's what the prophet actually said. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? In other words, there's no building that's capable of holding the glory of God. And the only reason that the Jewish people needed the temple is because they were so disobedient that God had to give them a physical representation of where he would do that or they probably would have not followed him at all. And so the reason that the temple was so important was to give them a connection with God. God was actually reaching out to them. And so over the years the worship in the temple had denigrated into a the reason that Jesus went into the courts of the Gentiles to the money changers' table was because it turned into a business enterprise. Took so if you want to offer something up? Come on over here and sell me. You know, it's Tuesday, so we've got two for one on doves. You need some sticks to go with that offering? Oh, we can hook you up. Bargain today, you know, normally those are $19.95, but today you'll get two bundles of sticks. And so Jesus flips over the money changers' temple. Jeremiah had actually warned them that that superstitious faith would turn the the house of God into a den of thieves in in Jeremiah chapter 7. The nation had not heeded the prophets. They hadn't listened to the prophets. They weren't hearing a word the prophets were saying. They were doing exactly the wrong thing. But in their minds, oh, we listen to the prophets. We revere the prophets. No, you heard the prophets but you didn't do a thing the prophets said. That's why you spent 70 years in captivity. You see, you can think you're following God. You need to remember your own history. That's why Stephen is going to be martyred. And so now they stubbornly resist the God, and God that they served in his truth. Verse 51, notice what it says. You stiff-necked. Now this is where Stephen kind of, he goes after him. He's like, okay, I've presented my argument. My case is basically closed. I think I've proven my case. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. That's not a good way to get people to like you, by the way. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Think of that for a second. They're over here. You disrespected the prophets. They disrespected the prophets. They were famous for it. That's why nobody went down to the union hall and said, I'd like to be a prophet this week. Nobody wanted to be a prophet. Everybody's like, don't send me to the children of Israel as a prophet. They're going to stone me. They're going to disrespect me. It's going to be awful. And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. That is exactly what happened. So we're saying, oh, well, we're all about the prophets. We're all about the temple. We're all about the law. We're all about Joseph. We're all about Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yay! They got their little pom poms out there. They did the little dance. Go, Hebrews. <laughs> they were the chief disrespectors of their own prophets. but don't let anybody else say anything. Of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers. Now you know who they're pointing to. Stephen's going, Jesus. Who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. This is like, It's the climax to his speech. It's the personal application part of it. He's saying, okay, gave you the story. Here's where you guys stand in the picture. You're guilty. The very thing you're charging me with, your own history tells you you did. So what's up? You refuse to accept the Messiah. He was here. You rejected. him. He's the just one. And so we find now the amazing martyr, Stephen, verse 54. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Yeah, I'm I'm guessing. They're sitting there listening to their own history, recounted in their own Torah, talking about their own historical understanding of the temple and everything about it. They, They cried, remember... What happened when when Ezra and Nehemiah came back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem the first time? So glorious was that temple that they wept that the new temple was not as good as the old temple. I mean, they were big on the temple. And they gnashed their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed to heaven and saw the glory of God... And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped there. They're, not, they're like, we're not listening to you. We do not want to hear this. And rat, ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. You all know what Saul that is. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling to God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's a man who was firm in his faith. That's someone who knew his Bible. That's someone who did things God's way. That's someone who knew the right priorities in ministry. That's someone whom God said a a few seconds later, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my kingdom of rest. You see, some of our problems... In our enlightened age, that we face is we can't remember our history very well. We need to remember our history and remember that the only thing that's an answer to that is a relationship with Jesus Christ grace through faith. It's not about religion, it's not about tradition, it's about the King of Glory coming down to this earth and forgiving us for the mess that we've made of our lives. You see, grace equalizes everything. And Stephen was trying to tell these Jewish religious leaders that very thing. Look, grace equalizes everything. It's not about the history. It's not about what you did do or can do now or will do later. It's about what he did when he died on Calvary's cross. He paid the price that you can't pay. And and this last little passage here, There in verse 56, it's the last time that the title, the Son of Man, is used in the Bible. It was the one that Daniel designated to the coming Messiah there in Daniel chapter 7. It's the last time it's used. Because now the gospel's going out to the Gentiles. Now the man that we'll meet in chapter 9 on the road to Damascus has just been complicit in the stoning of this incredible, spirit-filled, godly guy, Stephen. Stephen was not only tried in a similar manner to the Lord, but he also died with basically the same prayers on his lips. Amen. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Very same thing that Stephen said. Don't hold this against them, Lord. I want these guys to come to faith in you. Can you imagine? They heard that. That was audible. You talk of being cut to the heart, as Peter had already said. A heckler one time one time was shouting some threats at a street preacher in London, and they yelled out and said, "Why didn't God do something for Stephen when they were stoning him?" And the guy that was that was street preaching said, "God did something for Stephen. He gave him the grace to forgive his murderers and to pray for him." It was more important than saving him from the situation because he was ushered into glory. He gave him extra grace. And would the Lord give us extra grace? It's the same picture. If you ever read the, the story of Jim Elliott as he ministers in the late 1940s to the Alca Indians in Ecuador, As he's, he he said, I, I seek not a long life but a full one, just like the Lord Jesus and a couple of years later, as he comes under this attack, as he and his, his friends are there, he says, I must not think it strange if God takes uh, in, in youth those whom I, I would have kept on earth until they're older. He recognized that God controls He things. He said, I'm busy peopling eternity, and I must not restrict it to old men and women. May we be busy peopling eternity giving our lives for the cause of Christ, not just simply upholding tradition, but passing along the gospel and the grace that sets us free. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. And may we be like Stephen. Lord, would it be said of us that we were faithful to our last breath. Lord, would we hold nothing against anyone, Because truly all that we've received has been filtered through the gracious hands of you, our Heavenly Father. And and Lord, we're grateful that there is nothing that comes to us that hasn't been passed through your fingers. And Lord, whether it's something difficult or something wonderful, you have it all under control. Pray that we remember our history correctly, that we would not be unmerciful and unkind, ungracious when we have received so much mercy and kindness and grace ourselves would we be like Stephen, quick to forgive and ready to preach the truth we love you we bless you we thank you and we ask all this in the, the wonderful name the name that's above every name the name that it, one day and it may not be too far along or at the name of jesus that every knee will bow and tongue confess that you are lord to the glory of god the father we bless you in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.